now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Avengers Endgame Bonus Edition. Welcome to Sanity at the Movies. Yeah, that's our theme song. I really like it. I know the 80s are totally over, but I didn't pick it. We didn't pick it because we think that the 80s are cool and we wanted you to like us. We just picked it because we thought it was a cool theme song. All right, let's just get that out of the way. Now, secondly, we are going to talk more Avengers Endgame today. The story of a time heist gone right. And to do that, we've got me, Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. We've got Pastor Jacob Menzel. What's up? How you doing, Jake? Good. How are you? We've got Benjamin J. Solzer here manning the controls this time. We had Brandon last time. Now we have Ben stepping into the third guy shoes. Happy to improve things around here Happy just by being here. <laughs> I feel improved already. Ben, you have now seen Avengers? You had not seen it during mm-hmm. our last episode. True. Good. I've seen it. Yay. All right. Now, I want to explain something, which is that a week ago, we dropped an episode, and I said we were going to drop episodes every other week. This is not an official episode that you're hearing now. This is a bonus episode. And the reason that we're doing this bonus episode is because we got some listener feedback, and we think that listener feedback is something that we'd like to interact with on this podcast. Right, guys? Yeah. And this was- At least good, at least good listener yeah, feedback. Yeah, I mean, if you send us some crap, like- Your what? take was stupid, because I am stupid, and I don't understand- what you're talking about why didn't you guys review mortal engines all right so this comes to us from our friend scott longtime listener of other warhorn podcasts and he writes in an email to jake he says i am part way through the review of endgame and i have a thought i hate what they did with hawkeye he should not have had a happy ending he should have went to prison after seeing his family was alive Hawkeye is just one example of this, but I increasingly hate movies where the hero murders criminals. No due process, no civil rights, no court of appeals in the case of a wrongful conviction. Just death at the hands of a man who has stolen the authority of the civil magistrate for himself. I really want to see a movie where the hero, quote-unquote, vigilante, murders someone only to find out that the victim was not a criminal, but either a case of mistaken identity or someone falsely accused. The movie ends with the hero justly facing the death penalty. Hawkeye massacres an entire drug cartel. So were they all murderers and rapists? I'm imagining one of the people he murdered was a 14-year-old kid who worked as a runner, not even running drugs, but running cash. And he was doing so under threat of death because in real life, that's how cartels work. This character is not a hero. He's a bloodthirsty villain. He just happens to be killing other bad guys and probably some innocent people along the way. This role would have been better filled by the Punisher. Warmly, Scott. We thought that that was a email that was well worth responding to. Yeah. Your thoughts, gentlemen. We did not talk a lot about, I am going to ask you further thoughts, and I'm going to subvert your opportunity to give any thoughts, by saying we did not talk a lot about Hawkeye or Natasha last time. That's obviously a big plot point. And for yeah. any, this podcast is just always going to be spoilers. I'm not going to remember to do a spoiler warning every time, folks, but just assume spoiler warning every time you turn this darn thing on, okay? We did not talk about Natasha and Clint's story a lot, which is obviously a big part of in our last episode with Brandon. But now we've got Ben here. I know he has some thoughts on that section of the film as well, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But let's respond to this very good email from Scott. You're, you're, and so let me ask again, gentlemen, 
your thoughts. Well, Scott makes an obviously really great point. What happens with with Clint? His family gets dusted by Thanos, and he goes off the rails and becomes a murderous vigilante. And then the movie just accept, expects us to accept him once he's back with the team as the guy that we love. And then the movie demands that we just are happy for him at the end when he gets to go back to his family after his family is resurrected. And it doesn't try to deal in the least bit with any of the things that he did during those five years. Wants to show us, you know, he went to a really dark place. Right. It wants us to feel okay about it because the people that he is killing are really bad guys. Right. And, and, And in the logical framework of the movie, they probably want us to really think, you know, there's a real need for vigilante justice because, you know, half the Earth's population, the governments and everything was toppled and crime is rampant. And so I agree that they probably would say that they did a poor job of portraying that, though. Yeah, they it, didn't establish it's it. Too, yeah, it's, I really would have loved to just spend a little bit more. This is the one Marvel movie of all of them, as I as I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. In fact, I think Jake said it before off mic. It would be nice to see a director's cut, see what was else was on, because the movie is so has so many different moving parts and it's kind of disjointed. There, yeah, there you, was some connective tissue just to establish what the world actually was like. Yeah, what you get is this idea that, well, and the reason that they don't want to do that is because they need to give us the world back as close to the real world that we're living in now as quickly as possible once everything's resolved, because... We want to be able to relate and connect to these movies and not have everything be like in absolute disarray because of the snap. Well, and you need so, you need Tony Stark to have something just big over broad plot point. You need his life to be good enough that he's making a real sacrifice when he chooses to. If, if your hero's journey really is Tony's journey, then you actually want him in a comfortable place in act one so that when he makes that choice to join the team, then when he makes the ultimate choice at the end, he's actually sacrificing something. If it was, well, for example, one of the reasons why you kind of knew that Cap wasn't going to be the ultimate sacrifice is because Cap at this point in his life has nothing to live for, actually doesn't have anything to live for. And so it's not as big of a sacrifice. It's just like, well, I might as well throw myself away. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. um, Just in terms of movie logic, like if you came to this movie, not knowing anything walking in, right. You could easily figure out that, okay, there's exactly one person here that's moved on and that actually has something to live for. Nobody else does. And right. so he's going to be the one who's going to die and be sacrificed. That's just, it was just that obvious of a, of and transparent of a setup within the framework of the movie itself. But, you know, so you've got the Avengers, what's left of them. You have that one establishing scene where everybody is trying to hold the world to get, Natasha's trying to hold the world together. And so she's got Okoye and she's got, uh, Rhodey and what Rocket mm-hmm. and Captain mm-hmm. Marvel on the right. line, yeah, and they're all out there trying to hold the world. Except Captain Marvel's off in space somewhere, mm-hmm. trying to hold the world, hold other worlds together. Right. Um, Earth was not the only world affected, you guys. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Thanks, there's a little bit to say. Uh, there's some chaos, and also then we establish the fact that we don't know where Clint is, except that keep finding bodies. Yeah, except except Rhodes keeps finding bodies, and he knows that it's Barton. And so we know that he's off the rails. And so he's taken it upon himself to just go out and execute some vigilante justice, and it's brutal. Well, the thing and about so that he's is starting off in a dark place. Movies are, by the very nature of the medium, show not tell. It's a show not tell medium, as really are books, as are lots of things. But 
movies in particular. And so the fact that we never, until we get that dumb shot where Clint's killing all the guys, we never actually get to see the world degraded. We don't see Hmm. any real problem. We might hear about it over Natalie's or whatever her name is, her intercom system. But just being told that the world's in disarray and being told not very strongly is not the same thing at all as seeing shots of... I mean, you can imagine how... I mean, we saw a shot of an empty baseball stadium. We saw yeah, the, a couple of things that... The monuments that Ant-Man walks through, that kind of stuff. Which but, actually looked pretty nice and indicated some kind of stability and organization. Yeah, but just like the obvious shots of like the the city street with the newspaper blowing down it and it looks empty and the office space where there's only two people where there should be 50 you know we actually didn't get a lot of that no, what we got was cap saying i saw some whales in the harbor or on the hudson mm-hmm. or wherever a pot of whales and Here, if you're an gonna idea. tell me instead, uh, of, instead of having a gay uh a, a dumb scene let's just have a scene where cap's out and he sees some whales and he starts to cry like you can you can write a dramatic scene that shows doesn't tell. Yeah, really. I mean, really, you 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 could you would ramp it up a lot for the viewer if you did that. If you showed just how bad civilization was, I mean, he because could. five years without half those people, I mean, instantly. And people try some people trying to rebuild and and some people trying to take advantage of the chaos. Lots of people trying to take advantage of the chaos. All kinds of things like that. Well, and you could also call Thanos on his BS, basically. So another gentleman, I'm not going to be able to pull his name or his information up right now, commented to us in a message, one of our message boards, links to an article he wrote just about how everybody accepts that Thanos is big picture doing the right thing. You know, he's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. But this guy says, I mean, come on, A, overpopulation is not a thing. B, let's say you really did snap away half of the people. And let's say that that did do what Thanos thinks it's going to do in terms of resources, you're still potentially snapping away infrastructure, snapping away, you know, the people that make sure the food gets to Africa, snapping away leadership, snapping, you're you're actually... The the collateral damage is going to be astronomical. Right. And so if we wanted to actually show... all, All you actually have to think about is the fact that how many people got snapped who were driving a vehicle and how many people were still in the vehicle. Right. Like, (laughs) sure. How many pilots across the, how many people were doing things that when they got snapped immediately caused the deaths of people that didn't get snapped? Right. And then then follow that logic down the line with infrastructure, just the way that it would affect the economies. And well, I mean, like, and also it's like, okay, if you snap half the podcasters, can more people listen to great Warhorn media podcasts? Yes, but. What if you snap Nathan or Jake or one of the people that actually makes sure that those podcasts happen? Is right. is are, are those podcasts going to continue to? This is a si- really silly example, but you see what I mean. Actually, as, as our friend, um, and I'm sorry that I don't remember your name, sir, points out, not everyone is actually created equal. Yeah, if you snap government a leader, officials. What's that? Yeah, government officials. Guy who runs the power plant. Right, the guy that has the the knowledge of how to run the power plant. That's right. So basically, it just destroys the world. Right. The snap. Thanos is not actually achieving. And the, and the movie is very cagey, perhaps intentionally, about answering yeah. the question of whether Thanos, on a galactic scale, achieved what he thought he achieved. Yeah, and that didn't. cap scene is a big part of the caginess. Like, he gives a little look on the bright side moment. Right. 
And the look on the bright side moment is, well, the rivers are cleaner than they've ever been. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You know, there's a pot of whales in the harbor or in the bay or in the on the Hudson or wherever he said they were. And well, and one point that I want us to, I think we'll keep making on this podcast is that good storytelling is founded in the way that God made the world and therefore it's connected to morality. And so the more moral you are, the better kind, the better a storyteller you will actually be. It doesn't mean that every Christian's a better storyteller than every pagan. But what it does mean is... Or at is, least the, the better your moral vision. The, the better your moral vision is. And so, for example, if we had seen that Thanos essentially failed, if we had felt it, suddenly it's Thanos actually... goes from being a noble warrior kind of guy in the first movie to seeming like much more of a psycho. And so we're primed to get him and and for and when he comes back around in act two we feel the weight of oh no we have to stop this madman's plan you know there's not, not not only is it gonna do we have a personal stake like he's gonna kill some of our buddies but this is a bad plan this and, is literally the fate of the universe but they never bothered establishing that all they did was establish personal stakes yeah mm-hmm. i would compare it to george lucas's failure in the prequels that I think people over time will discover we're probably going to be more kind to the prequels than a lot of people are. Although I think society as a whole is coming around on those prequels. And I'm I'm with them. I'm coming around on the prequels too. But one of the things that's weird about that is there's this clone war that's happening. We get to see little battles, but like, can you imagine how much more powerful those movies would be if the galactic evil people were sieging Coruscant and... Anakin had to make choices about how to defend his home world and a home world that we as people have invested in. You know, if you, if you actually saw the toll, instead of yeah. cutting to the far reaches of the galaxy where random things are happening that don't actually affect any of our central characters, I think yep. it's kind of the same thing here where conceptually it's a big deal, but we're not sold as an mm-hmm. audience the idea yeah. that it's a huge deal. Yep. Um, yeah, it all feels, it actually feels, even the snap itself feels abstract. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking now, about how, how uh, you know, his, the snap turns them to dust. Okay, what if it just killed them? <laughs> there were a lot of dead bodies around. Suddenly, the whole movie would feel far more grim, like death would matter. Right. And you would, you would actually, I think, even if you knew the characters were coming back for You'd the franchise, it, it, wouldn't, it would still get you in the gut because it's, it's a bunch of dead and bodies. And it's like you have yeah. to bury your friends. It doesn't matter if you have a plan to bring them back. You're burying your friends. It just... So the movie, but the movie doesn't actually want you to have to deal with death. It wants to, I mean, it's kind of funny that it, it maps out to, uh, you know, burial versus cremation debate for Christians. <laughs> but Thanos essentially cremates everyone right. that yep. he kills. And their death becomes correspondingly weightless, like they as persons. You miss yep. them, but th- you don't have to deal with any remains. And the resurrection becomes correspondingly weightless. Because yeah, yeah, what we are we, talking about yeah. is a death, burial, resurrection motif combined with with sacrificial motifs as well yeah isn't it fascinating sacrifices and redeeming sacrifices yeah but what's fascinating about that is that we don't see the resurrection i can't you just imagine if you know we don't screenwriter 101 like you're gonna think of the idea of these bodies rising up into the air like the beast at the end of beauty and the beast or something and shining light and i mean there are these are cheesy ideas but you got to imagine like visually there's a way to say resurrection and the fact that they don't do that is not in you know portals portals. is what they gave us portals was what they gave us it is pretty lame but we don't actually see like did they all just appear i guess i don't know i mean yeah uh, yeah it did feel i mean even and once you get at the end it's like okay it's good they all got snapped back the whole world is back to normal basically oh but we missed tony but otherwise we're good 
Yep, back to normal. So what, I want to say one thing about this Lucas comparison, right. Star Wars comparison, because it's very possible that they knew by not giving that they were creating opportunities for other people. What what Lucas did, I don't, I don't think Lucas knew he was creating opportunities for people by doing a bad job of his storytelling. Right. But he created so many problems in this really interesting world that Clone Wars, the animated series, was able to step in and give color and life and right. answer and 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 fill out and build and give emotional weight and all kinds of things to all of these sorts of questions and failures in storytelling. It was a big blank canvas in the middle of an awesome world with a lot of problems. That that was a really cool thing that happened, and I would have never discovered if I didn't have kids, but I do, and so I did. And well, the constant refrain that I hear from people is, "Ah, oh, man." I liked the Clone Wars Anakin. I wish he was the movie Anakin. I wish Absolutely. that these stakes had been in the movie. I wish George Lucas had intended this Absol- stuff. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Clone Wars Anakin is like the coolest character in all of Star Wars. That's the truth. He's he's just awesome. And we follow him becoming, going from the dorky, impetuous apprentice to the most awesome Jedi ever in a believable way. That leans into all the flaws that he has in the movies and then tries to take you to a place where where he ends up as a petulant, frustrated person in episode three makes emotional sense. And it, they do a, an amazing job of that. Disney and, and Marvel have all these plans for, you know, multiple TV show spinoffs and things mm-hmm. like that where, and we don't know what the, right now, what the timetables and the setting, you know, when and how this is all going to play out. Right. So they could have left on purpose a bunch of those questions hanging out there intending for somebody else to answer them, which would be a savvy business move, but is still a bad storytelling move. Well, they've done that kind of thing before, made an unsatisfying movie, hashtag Ultron, that opens up ideas that can be answered later. Well, yeah, Ultron is one of the is one of the worst movies in the MCU, and yet it is one, one of, of the, one most of the most fruitful, fruitful, essential in terms of seeding plot ideas. That gets you where, like, we predicted, you know, so much of how Endgame was going to play out, and it was all there in seed form in Ultron. That was the one movie that was the key to opening up how it was all going to play. Yeah, and when the Romans persecuted the Jews, that was the best thing that possibly happened, and Christianity spread across the world. However, however, not (laughs) it was bad. Not a big fan of the Romans. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) the means don't always justify the ends, people. Yeah, don't be Thanos (laughs) or Machiavelli or Machiavelli. The other thing I want to say about that is I sort of resent and don't like just just creatively as someone who creates content for a living. I don't recommend the idea of being too careful with your creative resources. I generally think mm-hmm. that spend the ideas spend the, when, when you have a good create idea, a different set of creative problems. Right. Use it. Don't intentionally hold things back like we're not going to. You know, it, for us, it'll be really simple things. We found a great piece of music. Should we use it for this podcast now? Like, or should hey, we save it for the great podcast that we have an idea for that may not happen for another two years? Right. And every once in a while, we'll get two years down the road and it'll be like, oh, man, I wish we hadn't burned that there. But generally speaking, I'm just always happy that we burn things when we have them and when we're burning hot and we use them. And this is not something that you can necessarily apply to all places in your life, obviously. But creatively, I think it's just smart to be generous and be open with the ideas that you come up with and use them as you get them and trust that you'll be able to come up with more stuff and that if you create problems for yourself, you'll be able to 
solve them. You know, I think I think that and that having to solve them back writing yourself into a corner is actually when done with a little foresight and wisdom, a pretty good way to work creatively because it makes you come up with interesting ideas. And so you shouldn't hold everything back. You shouldn't be like, we'll fill in the emotional stuff later. If we don't solve all these problems, somebody else can. Generally speaking, I think. It's good that we don't solve these problems so somebody else has the opportunity to solve them. Right. Generally, I think that that's a self-defeating way to work. And it's been one of the more self-defeating things about Marvel. If you want to just criticize it as a franchise, it's that individual movies won't have payoffs. You know, it's the thing that people always complain about Marvel that, and generally they actually have done a good job, but where you want to complain about them often, it's because this such and such a movie felt like more of a setup than it did like a payoff. Or like um, it was paying off things that it didn't bother trying to set up intrinsically or or, uh, living off emotional cachet from other movies or other established. Yeah, the quintessential example being Captain Marvel very recently, which had no setups or payoffs, but just assumed that you'd like Captain Marvel. Yeah. And another another good example of the opposite is actually Spider-Man Homecoming, which is... I think one of the best MCU movies mm-hmm. and a solid movie by itself, but so much of that movie and the emotional weight of that movie depends on you bringing a whole lot to the character of Tony, right? for instance. Yeah, that's something that I've had to wrap my head around. That's how franchise filmmaking works these days, and I guess it's fine, but it's very strange to me. The quintessential example of the place where my I had a shift in my thinking is Rogue One, which taken by itself is a terrible terrible movie rogue one it's just i mean i know people will hate me saying this they'll think i'm a snob but believe me if rogue one did not have star wars iconography behind it if it was just if it was just some random movie some random new sci-fi thing that had all those beats you'd just be like what is this choppy disjointed unemotional mess who are these people and why should i care but big but in context. In context, connected mm-hmm. to episode four, connected to the Star Wars iconography, connected to the fact that every little boy has had a Darth Vader action figure <laughs> and imagined what this guy can do, connected to all, to the nostalgia that we feel, and rightly knowing that there's very few people, if any, that will come to the movie without all those things. It's kind of a masterpiece. It's kind of the best of all of them. Right. But... Only in context. And that's been a hard thing for me to wrap my head around because objectively speaking, Rogue One is terrible. I mean, like, it just doesn't do anything right. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, believe me, I've, have, you, have you seen Aragon? Try watching a fantasy movie with a bunch of disjointed ideas like that. It doesn't work. But in context, it's brilliant. And so that's, that is how franchise filmmaking works. I don't know what larger point to make with that. But Homecoming, for example... You have to bring your knowledge of the Iron Man movies and of Tony's. Although journey. Homecoming does do a fair bit of work for you with hero and the villain. Yes, on it, its does. Own. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It does. Because... Well, the, the, the best Marvel movies do both. They work. Yeah, they yeah. work. They pay huge dividends for people who are invested in the franchise, and they still work for people who are just coming because. Mm-hmm. Hey, I haven't cared about Marvel, but I really like Spider Man. And then there are certain Marvel movies like the Infinity Duo that simply say, "Hey." If you're not bought in by now, too bad. Too bad. And we had a friend that famously went and saw Infinity War. It was his first Marvel movie, and he hated it. And it was just like, but I mean, you, I'm, I'm sorry, dude, but they were the whole point of this movie is to pay off ten years of investment in all these characters, and so and to bring these this 
ten year saga to a close. So if if you ain't in, you ain't in. Like right. there's no getting in here. This is you decided to jump on the train while it was moving. 500 miles an hour. Yeah, I think that's fine. And I think I, I, I'm glad that they expect audiences. There's so many places where a uh, film is being dumbed down and where they just treat us like idiots. I'm glad they don't treat us like idiots there. I'm glad that they just expect, hey, come on. Like, if, you, if you're going to watch Return of the King, it means you watched the other two Lord of the Rings. We're not going to spend a lot of time saying, this is Aragorn, which I think is good. And you watch some older movies and it's, it's pretty lame, that yeah. kind of exposition dump. Or TV shows where it's just like... Hey, we're Starsky and Hutch again for the seven thousandth time. <laughs> I was like, can't we just know that you're Starsky and Hutch? How did we get here from Clint? Well, we started talking about you know if you if you ask the directors, the screenwriters, why we're supposed to accept Clint yes. and Clint's happy ending, and they would say, you know, just in terms of the logic of the movie, Clint was out fighting bad guys, and yeah, he went to a dark place, but he was a good guy all along. Here's what they did. They decided we have to figure out how to. They worked backwards, I think. We have to figure out how to get the soul stone. The soul stone requires a sacrifice. We can either write out a magical way where there's no sacrifice, which or we they're can, not above doing in all kinds of places, by the way. Yeah, and which they probably started with. Let's be honest. And then they thought, let's raise the stakes emotionally. We need a sacrifice. We also need the two lamest Avengers to have some emotional weight in this story. So let's make it about them. This is how we'll give emotional weight to the two lamest Avengers. We'll take Natasha and Clint. We'll put them there together. We'll have them fight for the right to give the sacrifice. Now we need to figure out how to give that fight emotional weight, give Clint a reason to die, give Natasha a reason to die, and give us a reason to feel good about either one of them dying so that there's drama and tension. And so what's Natasha's reason? Well, Natasha's reason is, one, she's got red in her ledger, and two, Clint's got a family. What's Clint's reason? Why would Clint not just let Natasha do it? Not because she's a woman. That's terrible. So instead, Clint feels like he has things he needs to atone for. He's done bad things. He's become a bad person. But not so bad. Bad enough for him to feel like he should sacrifice himself, but not so bad that we can't bring him back from it. And then we're just going to do logical leaps all over the place. And because you love these people, and if we do a really awesome, sweet opening scene, and people will just accept it. We'll plaster over it. That's basically what they did. Yeah, and but in, in the movie, what actually is going on, I mean, because you can't stop God's creation order from having an effect in the movie, what's actually happening is that Clint's the man, he should sacrifice himself <laughs> for the lady, the lady shouldn't sacrifice himself for her, and it's also the case that because she does, it's like she atoned for his evil. That's the emotional effect. That doesn't make any sense, and that's not what the movie says, but that's what, like, the movie says through its images, is like... Clint has just been redeemed. Well, he had to give something up. He blood. had to l- lose something very valuable to him, which was her. Yeah. 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 And then you're supposed to realize, like, he's had this emotional catharsis. Like, he understood, you know, like, she sacrificed himself. He sits up in the water. She's gone. He's like, you're, you're supposed to be with him as the viewer. I don't even know if the filmmakers understand just what they were doing there, but that's what they actually did. If there's one thing that I've learned in reading interviews with Russo brothers since then, it's that they didn't quite know what they were doing. I, I just read one today. Easily. They had Tilda Swinton come in twice. Now, reshoots are very common, so you shouldn't read too much into that. These big movies build reshoots in because that's just simply how they work. I don't know why they can't just spend a couple million dollars on hiring some really great screenwriters to just nail it. But that's not how studios work these days. And so reshoots are built in. So you can't read too much into it, but you do see 
chaos behind the scenes, you know, and them figuring things out on the fly. And you don't get any trust. You don't get any real. I don't believe that they really did think any of this stuff through all that well. Mm-hmm. But it just fits with the spirit. Well, of the age. Uh, and all you need to know is to really know that is that it never. They say they said it never occurred to them for Iron Man to say. I am Iron Man. Yep. But yep. You, you you were about to say you read something just this morning about Tilda Swinton. I oh, know well, she, you know, she she had to come and do her Ancient One scene twice because major plot points changed in between the, the months of those two shoots. Now, Ben, you were mostly bothered by, or the, the big thing that stuck out to you in the movie was, in fact, Natasha's sacrifice, right? Well, I mean, yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah, negatively speaking, yes. I really didn't like it. It was so, I mean, it's already, I mean, in Infinity War, it's like, it's a religious ceremony. You sacrifice something that you love, a blood sacrifice, in order to get something very precious and valuable. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then... The soul stone. The soul stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's no accident, even if it is an accident. <laughs> and then you have the woman offer herself as a blood sacrifice for the man, and even, like, forcibly overpower the man so that she can be the one to do that work. And that's just gross. Because the whole world is the key to our whole earth is that we all deserve to die, but Jesus sacrificed himself for us. So you have the son of the father sacrificing himself for the life of the world. And when you make a religious scene with a climactic sacrifice, and it's it's a daughter instead of a son, and she's forcing, you know, she's like pinning the son to the ground and tying him to the cliff so that he can't sacrifice them. it's just it's just really perverse like like you guys are saying they didn't understand the level of perversity they're engaged in yeah i don't it, think that they, they, they were yeah, getting convened to evil hollywood no cabal no that's liberals to say <laughs> that's that's <laughs> dumb subvert. and that's not how this stuff works right. you, you just you you breathe it in and you breathe it out yeah exactly you absorb it and it comes out of your it comes out of your pen into your screenplay yeah it's just you know you you absorb religious iconography and then you bend it to suit the religion of our times, which... To suit your own perversities. Right, which is feminism, which is egalitarianism, which is the whole idea that, you know what? Women deserve the dignity of sacrificing themselves for men. And the men need to be suppressed so that they'll stop that and accept the new order of things. Well, and so then, of course, what happens is she sacrifices herself for one man, for a team of men, Mm -hmm. and for the whole universe. And... In the process, we are, with this movie, completely flipping the script. That one sacrifice has potency. All of the men are rendered impotent. Tony gets a, his own sacrifice. Tony does. But all of the men are rendered impotent. And then we see rising. We lose the one female Avenger who we've had for the last 10 years. And we gain in her place, you know, chop off, hail Hydra. Right. <laughs> <laughs> chop off one head. <laughs> you know, seven more. And, and so we have that whole scene of the women who are rising up to accept the challenge of leading the franchise forward and who are now the actresses off screen calling for an all-female Avengers movie. Well, yeah. and I make this point constantly. I made it before. I'm going to make it again. I know that to a lot of our listeners, we sound like paranoid conservative cranks, but read the progressives. They are telling us that that's what they're doing. They are telling us that that's what they're happy about. They are saying things like, I mean, I guarantee you, you can find articles, I've read them personally, where they say, we are so happy that this movie undermined patriarchal, outdated assumptions, that the women are rising up, that the men are being put down, that this movie is teaching us 
that men cannot be trusted. They actually list out everything that Jake just said as a negative, they say as a positive. So believe Mm -hmm. them. Believe them when they say that. We're not being cranky here. We are just simply accepting as Christians at face value what they explicitly tell us that they're doing. And so many Christians want to just like be blind to that, and I don't understand it. No, it's what they're doing. It's what they're explicitly saying they're doing. It's what they're going to try to do. It's what they're it's being what they're praised gonna, for doing. It's what they're going to try to force on us and force us to accept. Economically, it won't work, and they'll they'll be frustrated and angry, and they'll take that frustration and anger out on us in other ways. It's just like you know the Ghostbusters movie flops, and everybody's angry. It just show, goes to Donald Trump, and it just goes to show you. <laughs> and hmm. apparently. You know, okay, so Tessa Thompson and Brie Larson have been calling for the all-female Avengers movie, A-Force, which apparently is a thing. I looked it up. And in 2015, Marvel tried this. They launched an A-Force comic series, which is an all-female Avengers led by, like, She-Hulk and some other Mm -hmm. people I don't know. But guess what? It was canceled right in 2016 because it didn't sell. Yeah, because guess who buys comic books? Little boys and adolescent males. And guess what they want to imagine? themselves as big strong boys that can do cool things <laughs> and save the day <laughs> and save the day nuance 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 do is there also are there also many of these guys who are emasculated and like to imagine stuff yeah blah, blah 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 but basically we have written into us the way that god made the world and that's basically at the end of the day whatever people want to tell themselves what they like and what sells but it is going to give birth to what we said this last go around, which is, or in the last episode, which right. is, and I think it's part of what Scott is uncomfortable, what made Scott uncomfortable right. is basically y- you have just increasingly these vigilantes who are right because they're right, mm-hmm. because their values align with our values. And so they're justified doing whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever, whatever it, it takes, whatever it takes, <laughs> right? They're justified doing whatever it takes to make the world line up with their values. And if that means going out and killing a bunch of people, then so right. what? Which makes me sad. I mean, and yes, to, to return to Scott's letter, it is, it is bothersome. And it's bothersome that they have to, it's, it bothers me that the Russo brothers who are so bad at, or maybe they're not, we can argue whether they're bad at, but they have a very particular aesthetic, and it's a handheld documentary kind of aesthetic. The one scene in the entire movie that is supposed to be, that is set up visually, that is designed to look like it's designed, that is, hey, I'm the director, I'm doing something here, yep. and it's cool. It's that scene, it's the one shot where Clint mm-hmm. brutally murders these gang guys or whatever. I don't know even what to say about that, but it's fascinating to me that the one place where they thought that they should step in and show their hand as authors, as designers, as creators, where they should reveal themselves and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, we made this. We designed this. Is that. Huh. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it is, I don't, it is I, interesting. I don't know. And, it, and it was very noticeable, like, oh, it's like we're in a different movie world or something. Yeah. Right. And they'll talk about it on the, com- the eventual commentary track. There's probably already articles where, they, well, they'll, where they'll tell us what, why, what they, mm-hmm. what they thought they wanted to show us by doing that. But yeah. it's not without intention, whatever. I, I don't really have something profound to say about it, but I just want everybody to notice that because I think it's interesting. Yeah, there's exactly, there are a couple places where, like, if you've got kids with you, you want them to close their eyes suddenly, and that's one of them. Yeah, and listen, I, folks, I grew up on Cannibal Holocaust. I've seen it all. I feel really bad at any time I'm sitting in a movie like that, not because it bothers me personally, but because, oh man, there's 10-year-olds. 
Yeah. Why do this? We're sitting in an audience full of kids and those scenes are kind of mean-spirited. I always feel bad in the Guardians movies sitting there with kids. They are mean-spirited and at least those moments are. And you've got, you know, it's what you said the other day. It's a it's an emotional setup for real whole hog persecution of Christians. If you think of it that way. Yeah, you should explain that. Well, I don't think our audience will necessarily have made the leaps with So you. here's the thing, and this is part of again Scott's objection is, hey, how about we have rule of law maybe maybe rule of law should matter in how we think about heroism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what we have is increasingly our heroes are right because there are heroes. There are heroes. We like them. We like them and they like us and we all share the same values. We don't like the other people because they poured beer on baby Groot. So they should be murdered with arrows and it will be adorable when baby Groot throws the guy off the Yeah, because the they deserved it. Because why? Because they didn't like our heroes. And they were mean to our heroes. And so, no, it's it's more complicated than that. They're smarter than that in a, in a way. But just the same, like at the end of the day, what it comes down to is our people are right because we like them, they like us, and we share values. And therefore, our people are justified in just brutally murdering everybody that they don't like. Well, now, now, now what you're making me think of, of course, is Civil War, where you have a pseudo version of like this argument, this exact yeah, argument, right? Yeah, I mean, and it was it was really stupid, w- but it's still there. It's there, and they put Cap and Tony on the opposite sides, on the opposite sides of it, where they their characters align for a reason, for a reason. But they made Cap just dumb. I mean, they made both sides dumb, to be fair. But yeah, they made Iron Man stand for the rule of law. Yeah, we need higher authorities, and they gave Iron Man the sacrifice in Endgame. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they made Cap stand for you know what. We're going to do whatever we want because of loyalty and the world just needs heroes because it needs heroes because it needs heroes. Safest hands are still our own. Right. That's right. And they try and have their cake, eat it too, and have both of those characters follow those trajectories and show that they're both good. But at the end of the day, if Cap can get away with it, then that's the viewpoint that I really think that they believe. I think it is what they believe. And the fact that they don't have a problem, we're supposed to accept Cap's downward trajectory over all of the Russo brother films into a selfish, me first, mm-hmm. my way, as or the a highway, journey. as a heroic journey, and they expect us to embrace that, then yeah, then that tells you all you need to know. If you read Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, the end of the journey, as he outlines it in classic mythology, is you return to the village and you find out that you can't, that you could never really go home because something fundamental about you has changed. You're wiser, you're more experienced, it's Frodo Baggins. Like, you can go back to the Shire, but actually you can never go back to the Shire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the idea behind the classic hero's journey. And to, so to have Capt just bald-facedly face, give a middle finger to that, I know that we talked about this last time, but yeah. you have to tie it all in. And then you tie that to Clint, who achieves personal growth through <laughs> murdering a bunch of guys. Well, he murders a bunch of guys, and then Natasha sacrifices herself for him, basically, and for his sins. Even, I mean, that again, that's the emotional weight that that scene carries. Yeah, no, that's that's and, that's and, the story they're telling, right? And so, and through and through that uh, atonement and that catharsis, it's like, hey, he he gets to live again. Yeah, but he it get- really is a gospel of catharsis. It's you felt bad and you did some stuff, and then somebody did something that felt really good, and felt really sacrificial. And so our feelings have been rejiggered and now we're okay. But you don't actually have to pay the blood sacrifice for your bloody actions. 
Nobody actually grows or changes in any positive direction. Right. Except for Tony, ultimately, over the course of 10 years of the MCU. The only, well, actually, there is one other person. Hulk. No, no, no. (laughs) That's not positive. (laughs) Nebula. Nebula, yeah. And and, and Nebula is is the fatherless girl who you actually, I mean, I actually loved her in this movie. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I love her. She had the best story. She, She was the only one who mattered. Yeah, she feels like. I felt emotion for her. I thought Guardians that 2 was great. That opening scene was so good. It was like, it was the best. Yeah. And Tony being, again, a Fatherly. stand-in father. <laughs> yeah. <It's fantastic. laughs> He's teaching her a game and, and how to have fun. Yeah. And, and, and he lets her win. Like, and and, and when, they, when they did their, their big lineup of, you know, Okoye saying, she's not alone. You know, she'll have help. When they're marching the gauntlet yeah. across. Was, was Nebula even in that muster? I don't know. I don't know. I don't don't think she was. She might not have been. Because Nebula is is amazing. Isn't isn't it amazing that she's that she's she's the one who who's a stand-in for the girl, the with a bad father who needs a good father and who kind of has a good surrogate father for a few days in space. (laughs) And then right, (laughs) a few days in space. The title of my upcoming novel. Yep. (laughs) Published by Warhorn Media. Um, (laughs) The last line of which is, and she had a good father for a few days in in space. space. (laughs) Well, but she's the one, she's the one who's not addressed. Like you have all these ugly empowered women. You have, I mean, at least, you know, Black Widow was pretty and feminine and acted like your sister. Captain Marvel's butch and acts like she's she's your she's your shrewish boss. Yeah, or your teacher that you don't like. Yeah, absolutely. Like who Hello like who, Peter Parker. Like, Welcome to class. Like who who cares about her? Yeah. But Nebula is left Nebula is the one who doesn't have a home when things right. are said and done because all the fathers are gone and all these empowered women, I guess they can have the world if they want it and we'll see what they can do with it. But whereas like Nebula doesn't have anywhere to go. Right. I'm going to look up and find... You're looking up that scene? I'm going to look up and see if they were all in it. Good question. I just can't remember her. Isn't there just a still shot of it? I don't know that that works. Nebula is in it. She is? This article says, Tom Spider-Man, Tom Holland Spider-Man's worried she she won't be able to fight through this Captain Marvel's there. To, but never fear. Here's Gwyneth Paltrow's Pepper Potts slash Rescue. Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, Evangeline Lilly as Wasp, Elizabeth Olsen as Scarlet Witch, Danae Guerrero as Okoye, Palm Clementifs, Mantis, Letitia Wright's Shuri, Karen Gillen's Nebula, and Zoe Saldana's Gamora here to help her. All right. More. Well, I will still I okay. still think it's fascinating that none of us knew whether she was in that scene. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I just came up with a theory for why that one one scene, what the Hawkeye thing was designed why the Russo brothers had such authori- obvious authorial intent there. And I think it's because their aesthetic is morally compromised in the way that it is. And so it's easier for them to believe in emotions like hate or like revenge. And so you see that in them being able to design a good scene for hate and revenge in a way that they don't even bother thinking to design for heroism, for Tony grabbing the hammer, for, I mean, where was the series of shots, as we talked about last time, the cool montage or the awesome slow motion or the just well-designed scene for Cap grabbing the hammer, for Tony snapping, for any of the big hero moments, they didn't have it. Actually, the only two times we have the movie poking us and nudging us in the sides and saying, there's an author here and he is doing something intentionally is that group of women. Yeah, that's what actually what I thought you were going to say earlier mm. instead and of the, the Hawkeye thing. The Hawkeye scene, which yeah. is 
a very obviously designed camera move and CGI spent to make it look like it's all one thing. And I think it's because I think you can see what they believe by what they emphasize visually and what they think is worth giving glory to. Listeners may be thinking, well, Nathan, actually, picking up the hammer was slow motion and we got a little hint of Cap's music there and then that really cool fight scene. But if you... Just think honestly about how quickly it was over, mm-hmm. how little of an emotional impact it had, except for the idea in your mind that Cat picked up the hammer and had a couple of cool moves with it. Right. If it you want- Really, I- you could have, and, and this is where you just need to remember the comparison that Nathan made last time, which is what if Peter Jackson would have done it? Right. It would have been the most iconic scene of the whole film. Right. And it would have been iconic and there would be memes and gifts for eternity. And we might make fun of it because it'd be so over the top. But Yeah. Well, if you want a more classic, a more old school filmmaker, an example to compare this to, think about the truck chase in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's about cause and effect and it's about building up to moments. So Indiana Jones says, I got to get that truck. And then he... And then we go to some still shots of some random people doing some stuff. And then suddenly he bursts out on a horse and the music goes nuts and he's riding and we're, the camera is looking up at him. And we don't get immediately to the action. We don't get immediately to fighting the Nazis. We just stick with that for 30 seconds. And then he rides up on the horse and we realize, oh, he's going to have to get from the horse for the truck. We have a moment to register that. And then he gets ready. He does the stunt. It's a big deal. Okay, now he's got another problem to solve. He's on the side of the truck. He's got to do this. Now we see what the Nazis are doing. And I don't have the scene memorized, but you understand. It's all mm-hmm. about cause and effect. It's all about build up <sighs> and release. It's all about... Oh, that's what makes Amazing Spider-Man 2's action sequences so good. You didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> I'm going to pretend like you didn't say that. I, it's absolutely true, though. And yeah, I, It I'm probably is. It's, it. just, it's just too bad they didn't have a screenplay. I mean, honestly, I, I trust you're probably right about sure. the filmmaking, but... We could go back and watch it after we're done. I mean, it's... <laughs> they, they you should. know what? We're just going to have to do it for Sanity at the Movies one of these days. Yeah, just for just for Ben's sake. That's and fine. certainly not for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tear it to pieces. Well, and then it's like we have three or four big moments. We're going to get we're gonna get to him on front of the truck. We're going to get to him sliding under the truck. And we have many moments within that. We have, oh, there's Nazis on the side. What am I going to do? Oh, there's leaves coming up. All right, I'm swerving the truck. Hey, now the Nazis are falling off. Oh, you, you you understand how a sequence like that has a ton of thought that went into it in terms of how can we make this the most exciting, cool mm-hmm. action scene. And and then you think about the fact that people like the Russo brothers have infinite resources. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier about creativity and how sometimes it's good to paint yourself into a corner. They're never painted into a corner. They can literally, they have the money, they can show you anything. And so yeah. not to be a grumpy old man about it, but they don't actually at the end of the day, end up having to give a lot of thought to how to make those moments pay off cinematically, how to build up to them, how to pay off in a cool way. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. There's the cheesy Peter Jackson way. There's the very smart, very old-fashioned in its way, Steven Spielberg way. And there's everything in between. The MTV way. There's the Guy Ritchie kind of way where it's just 10 billion different shots from a 10 to billion. You know, like Mm -hmm. Guy Ritchie has a very flashy, kind of silly style in a way. Yeah. But... But you he's know, certainly doing it. You you know what he wants to achieve, and generally he does achieve it. He's um, giving you yeah. the connective tissue all the time. Right, right, right. And so I'm sure this is this will be one of my one of my hobby horses or whatever you call it. Is a hobby horse one of my one of the things I'm just going to beat into the ground? Yep. Sure. Every time we talk, but this Clint scene, 
So just to finish talking about Scott's letter, yes, Scott, we agree. I mean... It was really cheap what they did. It was just bad storytelling, and it's certainly bad moral... Well, and when I read the email, it just made me think, as I often do, or as I don't actually think enough, gosh, there's so much about movies that I just accept because story movie logic tells me that certain things are okay. Like, revenge is just ubiquitous yep. across movie dumb. And I'm just basically, I don't even think about it at this point. It's just like, oh, yeah, you should get revenge on that guy. I, I, never, I, I very rarely stop to think, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, just like watching a James Bond movie. And if you're going to watch, you know, you watch some of those old James Bond movies and it's like, you just stop thinking about the fact that fornication is evil because there's fornication, the, the scent of fornication in every other scene. And it's kind of a joke. Yes. And you kind of accept that it's a joke. Like, oh yeah, James Bond is just like, he'll sleep with anyone. That's the thing. That's James Bond. And it's kind of like cute. And you know, as a Christian, that it's not cute, that it's evil and it's destructive, but you don't think about it. You just simply don't, you don't think about it. So I think it's helpful to just, I don't think you can't make movies about fornication. I don't think you can't make movies about revenge, but I think it's helpful to just take a step back and realize, oh, Clint would need to go to jail for that. Like it wasn't okay. He wasn't off the hook morally. He wasn't off the book, off the hook judicially. He just, just because he had some emotional catharsis and a friend of his died to get him off the hook for anything. Certainly didn't get his conscience off the hook. Yeah, and you know what's what's interesting is that our listeners picked up on if you're tracking with everything that we do, our other other podcast, The Bill, uh, they tracked with the fact that Stu, Pastor Stu, at the end of season one, never got his actual comeuppance. Never mm-hmm. justice was never actually served, and there was discussion about that and whether or not we would come back. Or whether or not it was just like us making a statement or or whatever. Yeah, without um, giving it away, if you haven't listened to it, you should. Basically, at the end of that season, somebody gets revenge. And yeah, it's cathartic for the audience. And we knew it would be. And it was cathartic for us to write it and conceive it and perform it and score it. And we milked it for all we could. Now you have to ask the question, did we know what we were doing? Right. Or didn't we? And there's only one way to find out. Subscribe to The Ville. See where it goes. See where it goes. <laughs> there's a, there was, man, I really want to find this again. Uh, there's a graphic, a meme about like what it would take to be stabbed by an MCU character. And it was all vengeance. And so like at the top is like Spider-Man would never stab you. But then like the next level is like hurt their friend. Right. Or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, well, I think John Favreau set the tone with Iron Man. In the very first Iron Man, he gets out of that cave. Tony builds that robot and he's just decimating those terrorists in a way that I don't think it felt like horribly brutal or anything at the time, but I I think it definitely basically crossed a line starting with the very first movie where it was like, these guys are going to kill people. This is not your dad's superhero movie. Hmm. You know, Iron Man kills a lot of people in that first Iron Man and he does it not by accident, not collateral damage. He just kills people. Mm -hmm. He blows them up. Yeah. In well, okay, so it was also two thousand eight. Right. And if you wanted to establish that your superheroes, it's okay for them to kill people, what do you do? You have them kill a bunch of terrorists. Right. Yeah. And you have what's what's his face? Chris Nolan making such a big deal out of the moral conundrum of being Batman. I think it was refreshing to just say, Iron Man's Iron Man he kills people whatever i mean i think i think i think it actually is part of the appeal of the universe in some weird perhaps perverse way 
but it's certainly something that's worth noting. Thor kills people. I mean, who doesn't kill people besides Spider-Man? Is there anybody who doesn't kill people just as a matter of course? Captain America does. The first Captain America movie. He's he, like he's actually shooting people. Right. Nazis. Oh, never mind. Not people. Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> as long as someone is other, <laughs> it's okay to do what you want to them. <laughs> yes, people. Nazis are bad. Come on. Don't make me nuance that. The other point I would make to Scott's email is that People have a need to see justice done. It's one of the things that has been in storytelling from time immemorial since those suitors in Odysseus at the very least. People like to see justice done. It's something that stories are good for. As we increasingly don't believe in the apparatuses or the apparati, Ben? Apparati? Um, Yeah. As we come to disbelieve in the apparati for justice, as we don't believe in the police, we don't believe in, you know, not to go on a conservative rant here again, but as we don't believe in the army, we don't believe in war, we don't believe in fighting, we don't believe in capital punishment, we don't believe in any of these things, but we still have this need to see justice done. And so what happens with our films and our movies and our entertainment and our stories? They have to come up with these increasingly outlandish and weird and perverse scenarios. They have to have a bad guy who's really, really, really bad. You know, you watch an old John Wayne movie, it's like, he's the bad guy because he's the bad guy. He wants to steal their land. And John Wayne's been deputized against him, so John Wayne's going to shoot him. He's going to clutch his chest. He's going to fall off the thing. Yep. That's just what it is. But now it's like the bad guy has to be a rapist or a psychopath or a killer. The bad guy has to be really, 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 really bad because we're not going to feel good because we want to see justice done. And so we need the bad guy to justify it by just being the biggest slime ball or by threatening the entire world. I just think there's such a market in Game of Thrones and all these kinds of things for for these revenge fantasies, for bad people doing bad things to other bad people. And it's because we don't really believe in good people. We don't really believe in any of the tools that actually do accomplish justice. And so we have to bend over backwards to give people what they still basically want, which is justice. Well, we don't believe in the moral order or the objectivity of a moral order. Right. And so then everything has to become subjective and it becomes vengeance. It becomes preference. It becomes... And that's what we were talking about earlier with the idea of, well, my heroes are better because they're my heroes, because I like them. They like me and they like what I like. Right. We share the same values. And so you just simply establish either that your heroes and you share the same values or that the villains are just that evil. And then you can have some just justice be done. Well, you you would just think in a society that doesn't really believe in old-fashioned justice, let's not make movies about old-fashioned conflict. And yet... We still have to. Like, we have this need to still tell those stories, and so they become subjective, they become perverse. You would think that the solution would be to just tell different kinds of stories, but it turns out, at the end of the day, we still want to see the bad guy. We still want to see the the kill the dragon, get the girl, right? So now we just have to justify who who do we think as a society a dragon is, and why do they think we should be killed, and who do we think the girl is, and our answers are perverse. And they're going to become more perverse, and the answer at the end of the day is from a societal standpoint, unless or until God does something miraculous in our country, is going to increasingly be Christians. Right. It's going to be us. That's where this is all headed. That's so dumb. It's so dumb. I mean, <laughs> to make the understatement of the century, it's dumb. And it takes away from the fun of some of these stories. Let's imagine if Thanos was just bad. If he was like just a bad guy, we could take some pleasure in him getting snapped. But instead, they have to play it sad. I guarantee you. I'll bet you five bucks, Ben, 
you watch if the the Russos record a commentary track for this Endgame movie, the scene where Thanos gets snapped and he looks around mm-hmm. and he turns to Ash. They will ta- they will say, you know, it was so important to us that we show that this wasn't a moment of triumph, but this is the mo- the sad death of a warrior. And yes, he did bad things, but we wanted to show, <laughs> you know, that I mean, you know that they will say that as they talk about that scene and that's how they played it you know oh that was no. what it showed yeah or yeah. thanos he was complex and interesting and now and yet he wasn't that complex and interesting he by wanted that time to kill half of the people he in was, the universe he was and he had already massacred well they always want to have their cake and eat it too so he, they, he started out complex and interesting but by the end you know what actually your planet's dumb and i'm gonna take pleasure in killing you and then i'm gonna kill not just half the people of the universe but everyone in the universe and start over with a universe that sees me as god so we have thanos start out interesting and then randomly become a psychopath so that we can get to well he was always a psychopath but you know what Mm -hmm. i mean he suddenly becomes over the top evil where he'd been more relatable evil because we still just need a bad guy at the end of the day and they do the same thing with women all the time less and less these days but you still need a nurturer you still need someone to be a threat you know threatened you still so and so a lot of times you'll have these really inconsistent things my classic go-to example is always trinity from the matrix who starts out kicking people across the room and ends by telling neo that she she knows he's the one because she loves him and i'm sort of glad in my perverse christian way i guess that nature won out that morality won out that the woman became a woman but the woman had to do a lot of convoluted things to be a woman, or actually they just had to throw logic out the window. Like Trinity's one kind of person through most of the movie. Then now she's not. And then at the end, she's like soft and feminine. Like why? Where did that come from? It didn't come from anywhere. She <laughs> she just was because the movie said she should be. And so it's weird. It's weird the kinds of storytelling and the unsatisfying kinds of storytelling you do, you get when you throw out God's law and you don't believe it. Is there anything else you guys want to say? Any other thoughts about this or about anything else from this movie? Nope. No, I'm good. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week with something else. Family at the Movies was... Engineered by Benjamin the Great, Benjamin Solzer. Produced by Nathan Alberson. Executive produced by Jake and Nathan. And more great content, go to warhornmedia.com. To support this work, go to patreon.com slash soundofsanity. We are currently rejiggering that so that it will be a place where you can support more than just the Sound of Sanity podcast, but also this one and a couple of others. Until next time, folks. I can do this all day.